0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Technology Report. I'm your host, Vagro Miradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Mark Montgomery of the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies with an update on how China plans to hack U.S. and allied satellites to take control of them and much more. But first, joining us is AJ Piplica, the CEO of Hermias, an innovative company he co founded that aims to develop hypersonic aircraft for commercial and military applications. The company is also unique in that it is uh, now developing an engine for its aircraft, uh, the Chimera power plant, uh, that is going to send uh, variants of this, uh, of the three variants of their aircraft, uh, to more than three times the speed of sound. The company has contracts from NASA and the United States Air Force, and uh, last year secured more than 100 million in funding, which is great news. AJ, thanks so very much for joining us. Thanks so much, Valgo. Later. Uh, a pleasure indeed. Uh, and before we get started, our daily podcast is sponsored by Bell. Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. General Atomics uh, Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communication sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. Uh, AJ, uh, there are a lot of companies out there working on this uh, hypersonic challenge. Uh, you guys are looking at this uh, as well as the manned and unmanned side uh, of the equation, but so are a lot of other guys, including Lockheed Martin. Martin, for example, uh, what makes you guys different from others?
1: Yeah, I think it's really the, the core tenets that we've put together and, and built uh, you know, on top of as a foundation for the company. And, and those are um, to be vertically integrated where it makes sense. These types of vehicles are incredibly complex um, and the subsystems interact in, in a very integrated fashion. To the point where you can't design an engine alone and an airframe alone and expect to put them together. So um, in order, I think, be successful here, you really have to put all that under one roof. And, and we've seen that success um, happen in, in the, uh, you know, the space launch world, as well as the satellite world in the commercial side over the past 20 years. So um, it's been a while since that ha- that's happened on the aviation side. Um, but I think hypersonic aircraft is exactly the, the correct spot and, and frankly, the necessary spot for that to happen. Um, the other big piece, is, uh, is getting to integrated hardware and software systems as quickly as possible. Uh, we take a development approach um, that leverages, yes, modern uh, analytical capabilities, computational models, um, but also building hardware testing and getting data to validate those models and allowing that to drive an iterative process um, to get to the capabilities that we need to get to at the end of the day. So we're not trying to break every airspeed record uh, right off the bat first aircraft. We have a lot to learn uh, as a company and, and as a design practice. And you know we're doing that by really marrying think the the modern um, you know, computational methods alongside, you know, frankly, the, the way that we developed aircraft in the 1950s. And again, this has been done in, in other parts of the airspace world, space launch and satellites quite successfully. Um, and we think it's time to, to bring it here uh, to the aviation world.
0: You guys are moving uh, exceptionally quickly. And I want to get to, um, you know, the operationalization of your Chimera engine first. But talk to us about sort of walk us through the building block model. And the speed at which you guys want to move, and how the small is actually going to lead, at least in your plans, to the large more more quickly than many would expect, right? Folks have a 16 year development cycle, and that's totally not how you guys are looking at this, right? Back to your 1950s model.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, you know, our long term vision as a company is to radically accelerate air travel by building Mach 5 passenger aircraft. And and we'd be naive to think that we could do that right off the bat, even given 20 years. Um, You really have to go through, understand, Uh, all of the technical risks that need to be bought down along the way, um, from propulsion to thermal management, environmental management, control, um, not to mention all all the regulatory things that come in there. Um, And then frankly, like the business side is is even harder than the technical side. Um, We're not just going to go raise billions of dollars uh, of, of private capital to go do this. We need to solve really important problems for customers along the way. So um, the iterative path that we've laid out over the next you know, decade or so to, to get to this capability um, starts out with uh, Quarter Horse, which is designed to get up to uh, about Mach 4 and get back. So, demonstrate the propulsion system, uh, Chimera in, in this case, um, that works over the full operating regime. Um, Dark Horse, start to learn about the long duration elements of, of high speed flight and then take that and scale it up to um, something at the Halcyon scale, which can actually you know, take 19, 20 people across the Atlantic Ocean in 90 minutes.
0: And your case is that there is a good business case to be made for this, right? Uh, ultimately.
1: That's right. And I think, I think there is a fantastic business case to be made, not just on the commercial side, um, which is obviously quite a bit further in the future. Um, it requires a massive uh, massively larger amount of capital, but on the defense side as well. Um, and you know I think a lot of folks would look at you know what we're doing here with hypersonic aircraft, you know, hypersonic aircraft are fundamentally a dual use technology, um, but really in the near term here, we are you know, 100% focused on solving national security and, and defense problems um, with the autonomous hypersonic aircraft that we're building along the way to you know, passenger aircraft down the road. So um, you know, if we're successful at doing that, at solving those national security challenges, um, I think there's there's a, a massive business case there. Um, you know, just seeing like what's going on in the collaborative combat aircraft world today, um, how autonomy is working its way in, into the future of the Air Force and looking at the threat environment um, that the Air Force needs to deal with in the second half of this decade and into the 2030s. Um, speed is gonna be a really important element of that. It's speed delivered at scale, um, which is underwritten by a a cost point that enables that. So um, you know, that's really where I think hypersonic aircraft, especially autonomous ones, are gonna come in and be a real game changer. But um, you know, it can't be something uh that is you know at the strategic level, it's not gonna be a, you know a half a billion dollar, billion dollar aircraft. Um you really have to do it much more efficiently uh and frankly, much smaller. So you know, limiting the requirements, making sure you're doing what needs to be done, no more, no less. Um, and delivering that capability uh, in a time temporally relevant fashion to you know the fight that we have today. Uh,
0: so the good news is your engine works. Uh, so that's always a big uh, thing. <laughs> yeah. uh, how are you uh, going to operationalize this? Right. I mean, as you said, you guys are looking at a more vertically uh, integrated uh, approach, taking lessons uh, from SpaceX, obviously. Most folks are going outside, right? I mean, boom, supersonic is in trouble because somebody won't make them an engine. Uh, How do you end up operationalizing Chimera?
1: Yeah, so that really comes down to the architecture that we've selected for the engine um, in that uh, we're leveraging off-the-shelf gas turbine engines. Um, So there there really is no development that needs to happen on the part of that engine that's really, really difficult. Um, You know, an efficient gas turbine engine, plenty of those exist. They're just not designed to the requirements of sustained high-speed flight. Um, so we've kind of designed our architecture around that assumption um, in that, you know, for the Chimera engine that we have for quarter horse that uses a general electric J85. Um, we actually don't modify anything on the engine at all. We use the engine off the shelf as it comes. Um, we've put a, a pre-cooler up in front of it that allows it to get up to about Mach three, uh, put a Ramjet on the back that allows it to get from Mach three up to about Mach four and, and, uh, and Camera two for dark horse to get up to Mach five um, and a bypass system uh, to run those two, two modes independently. So, um, yeah, the, the business model is really driven by by the architecture. Like we're not going to engine prime saying, hey, pour billions of dollars into development of an engine that doesn't that doesn't have a proven market yet. We're saying we want to buy your engines coming off of your production lines today and grow you a line of business organically without you having to take any risk at all. I think that's a real innovation here.
0: A little while ago, raising money was really easy. Now raising money is really hard. Uh, how are you still raising money? <laughs> <laughs> or yeah, what's the so, approach you need now that you didn't <laughs> before?
1: Yeah, for sure. Uh, we were in a really special time there a couple of years ago. Um, and then certainly I think had Hermes has been founded a few years early, we'd be in an even better position today. But that said, we are, we are where we are in a global macroeconomic uh, place. Um, but really that, that puts the onus on, on us as a company um, to really be a strongly investable company. Um, there's still a massive amount of of dry powder, of capital out there that is just sitting on the sidelines, not making a return um, that does need to be invested. So I don't think we have a capital shortage. What we have a shortage of is is investable companies. Um, so that's that's really my role as as a CEO here um, is to ensure that you know when when it comes time for Hermias to raise this next round of funding, um not only are we an investable company, we are like an end of one, the only company. Um, that somebody can uh, put their money into to, to access a market like this. You know, SpaceX is, is in that uh, in that light. And the way that we do that really is by number one, making technical progress at a rate um, that most people don't believe is possible, and we've demonstrated that. We have a really strong track record over the past four years in doing so. Um, we've continued to up the stakes there uh, as, as we will for the coming years. Um, and then number two, demonstrating that um, you know the the market that our products are being developed to go into exist and our customers um, are looking to us to service that market. And that really comes um, in the form of, of revenue uh, and, and long-term revenue, not just, you know, onesie, twosie, uh, small business, innovative research grants, but real honest to goodness uh, revenue that can sustain the company. Like there's no better state uh, with, you know, with which take a company fundraising um, other than the state when the company doesn't need to fundraise. So, you know, that's, that's my job is to guide us um, and, you know, help accelerate our growth leverage that outside capital that, that is certainly there uh, and, and make our company uh, the best place that people can put their money.
0: Uh, two uh, uh, quick uh, questions. One, what's the next uh, technical hurdle, right? In November, you guys showed uh, that the engine works. What's the next big milestone you guys are shooting for?
1: Yeah, the next big thing is to put an aircraft in the air. Uh, so right now we're building our uh, first couple of airframes here in Atlanta, uh, two for ground testing, one for flight test, um, and uh, we'll hopefully be rolling around a runway. Uh, in the second half of this year, and, and ready for flight by the end of the year. So that's that's the next big milestone for us as a company to mature to actually become an airplane company. Uh,
0: no, no stress uh, nor pressure at all, AJ. So uh, I, know will, uh, argue, I know you guys are. I know you guys are going to kill it. Uh, let me ask you kind of a, a combined question. There are those who say you know, that you guys are really chasing a, a pipe dream, you know, bigger companies than you guys have been involved in this, right? I mean, people point out that Skunk Works has been working on uh, some of this stuff for a long time. Here you guys are as a tiny company. Uh, and then those who say, well, you know, and, and the Air Force may have been as excited, but they're somewhat less excited. How do you respond uh, to those, I don't want to say naysayers, but but people who sort of say like, yeah, this is a really interesting thing, Um you know, but is um, you know really maybe a little too ambitious for a tiny company?
1: Yeah, I think that comes down to our actions and and uh, the pace at which we buy down technical risk, um, the pace at which um, our customers are demonstrating um, with uh, you know with contracts um, their willingness to you know, continue pursuing this technology and, and get it delivered and out to the warfighter in, in a time that's significantly faster than than a lot of people think. So. Um, yeah, like, I mean, I can say all the nice things that I want. People will think what they're going to think. Um, but you can't argue with the scoreboard. And, um, I think we've, we've done that, um, quite, quite well, I think over the past couple of years, especially on the propulsion side. And now, um, you know, our next step, as, as we just talked about, um, is doing that with, with an aircraft in the air, um, improving that. Um, so we've proved, for example, that you can mode transition between a gas turbine and a ramjet at the equivalent of, you know, Mach 3 conditions on the ground. Um, you know, doing that in flight uh, is, is a thing that's never been done before. Breaking a speed record hasn't happened in, in almost 50 years. Um, and when we achieve those things, um, you know, that technical progress will be very difficult to argue with. Now, that's not to say that achieving those you know, technical development milestones with Quarter Horse you know, write us a blank check to, to the future. Not at all. I mean, there's, there's a graveyard of programs that achieve massive technical success, but never achieve programmatic success of actually getting to scale. Um, so I'm speaking specifically with the DoD, but it happens in the commercial world as well. So, um, you know, ensuring that we have kind of time phased, um, you know, the, uh, the pull of, of the DoD alongside, uh, you know, when the technology is ready, because you really need both of those things to create the perfect storm to, you know, drive urgency and create a program. I think the threat environment is there to drive it. Um, I think we are slowly building the belief that this can happen um, on, a, on a timeline that is relevant to that threat environment. Um, and, and now it's a matter of you know, demonstrating the performance um, and the ability to, to scale in, in both production and, and operations. So, um, yeah, I think frankly the, you know, the answer to all those naysayers is, is, is on our shoulders um, to, to prove out. But I think uh, if you kind of extrapolate based on what we've accomplished so far, both in terms of the amount of capital that we've brought to this program, um, as well as the technical milestones that we've achieved, um, you know, we're, we're well on our way. But like frankly, we haven't accomplished anything yet.
0: Um, let me uh, ask uh, one last uh, follow up right you're looking at all manner uh, of applications right i mean there're reconnaissance uh, okay. transport strike uh, applications that come from the capability not to uh, not to say sort of game changing commercial uh, air transport uh, capabilities or the next step's going to be through partnerships right is this going to be attracting a Boeing or a Lockheed or a General Electric or being an intermediary, right? I mean, as you look at the strategic plan forward, obviously you want to mm-hmm. do this on your own, but you could also see how in a number of different ways you guys get very attractive at different levels of this, mm-hmm.
1: right? Yeah, for sure. I think I think this is one of the areas where there are actually some fundamental differences between um, you know, aircraft uh, and I'll say space launch. You know, we, we like to make the SpaceX analogy all the time. Um, but it's a very very different operational environment for launch vehicles, um, you know, versus aircraft that are operating within you know, the U.S. Air Force, um, and uh, there, there's a much much larger barrier to entry there. Um, that said, uh, there, there's I think a, a really good set of um, of companies that's um, you know that we've already partnered with, for example. So um, you know uh, Raytheon Technologies has invested in Hermes. Um, we've bought our first uh, F100s for the Chimera two engine for Dark Horse from Pratt and Whitney. Um, like we, we don't plan to reinvent the wheel where like the wheel works, um, within the the scope of, of what we need to do. So, um, yeah, I think for us, it's like when, when we make when we make a decision as to what to pursue, like, do we do something in-house? Do we partner for it? It really comes down to two fundamental questions. And that is what they're like, does this radically accelerate us toward our end goal? Um, or does it radically reduce risk against that end goal? Um, if the answer is yes to both those questions, we're probably going to take that path. Um, and I think when you when you look at decisions like you know do you partner with a prime do you sell to a prime um, you really have to start with those two fundamentals um, to get to I think the the right answer for the business as as a whole. So, um, but I think that and I kind of as you pointed out the the nice thing for us though is that like there's a massive amount of optionality um, in terms of how we take the business forward um, you know when things become operational. So you know I don't want to close any doors necessarily, but you know we we're we have our guiding North star. We know where we're going as a company and that is to radically accelerating our travel. So, um, you know, leveraging that, that unified vision, I think gives us, um, you know, the, the right path to to make the right decisions when the time comes.
0: AJ, thanks very much. All the very best to you guys as you uh, go through the process and look forward uh, to having you back on uh, again, as you guys go from success to success. All the best.
1: Thanks, Bago. You too.
0: And joining us now is Mark Montgomery, a retired United States Navy rear admiral who is, the Senior Director of the Center on Cyber and Technology Innovation at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. And he is also the Executive Director of the Cyber Solarium 2.0. Mark, it's always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thank you for
0: having me, Wagner. Mark, uh, thanks very much uh, for uh, joining us. Uh, the Cyber Solarium Commission uh, three years ago started focusing the nation's attention on critical cyber infrastructure uh, and a sort of a national approach uh, to protecting it. And I think that on almost every metric, we're, we're doing better. Uh, but now we see uh, a great story uh, reported in the Financial Times that China is building uh, the very kind of capabilities that we've warned uh, that they would be developing. Uh, cyber capabilities uh, to take control of uh, satellites uh, from from countries they consider to be adversaries. Uh, We're all working on defending all manner of critical infrastructure, including in space. Walk us through uh, the danger, what this story really tells us, and how we're doing on defending ourselves against these kinds of threats, right? Because it's not until it happens that you realize you might have actually a vulnerability.
2: Well, thanks, Vagel. You know, you're hitting on an excellent point, which is where do we stand on cyber resilience? And, and I agree with you that we have improved a lot of areas. The U.S. government has, and the private sector has, over the last three years, and and we deserve some kudos for that. However, our cyber resilience is still fragile, and I look at it in three areas. The first is military mobility. I mean, is are are our ports secure? Our maritime infrastructure? Are our rail systems secure? Are our airports secure? You know, are those networks that move the the, the troops' equipment, supplies, and spares as they leave the bases or leave defense industrial base factories and head to the war fight? Are those secure? You know, Of course, those are all, almost all owned and operated by the private sector or state and local utilities. And have we done the right kind of analysis of our military mobility networks? And I think the answer is no. And I think we have a lot of work to do to make sure those rail systems, port systems, Um, and uh, uh, air networks and even highway systems are uh, are, uh, you know, kind of risk free uh, from from the Chinese um, or Russian um, malware threat. Um, I think that the perfect two uh, congressmen are working at the House uh, Representative Ro Khanna and Representative Mike Gallagher are the ranking and chair of the of the Cyber Subcommittee on the House Armed Services Committee and both of those men have have talked about the need to address this cyber resilience, and I, and I think you'll see legislation where they work with the Homeland Security team that is uh, Mark Green and uh, Betty Thompson uh, to kind of try to get that legislation done. So that's military mobility, and then Vago, there's the old trusty National Critical Infrastructure. You know, the thing that that makes our economic productivity hum, that allows the defense industrial base to produce those weapons that. That uh, you know allows us to produce, uh, you know, to continue to function, so that we can do our economic and diplomatic soft power moves. Uh, that's reliant on an electrical power grid, water systems, healthcare, those same transport networks, and most importantly, that financial services network. All of those have to be secure, and some of them are pretty secure, like financial services. And some of some of them are insecure, like water. We have to work very, very, uh, very assiduously to kind of correct those as well. So there's military mobility. There's national critical infrastructure. And I'll give you one more. It's disinformation. If we get into a crisis with China or a contingency, we are going to be bombarded with disinformation. That is going to be done as a wedge topic to try to push Americans uh, apart from each other and away from the idea of defending Taiwan. And so there's a third element. You know, there's military mobility and that protecting national critical infrastructure and preparing and, and fending off disinformation. That is a lot of tasks. Uh, being pushed under our cyber defenders, which really means we have to do a lot of work ahead of time. So I guess the short answer is uh, we're not ready. And the long answer is there's a lot of work to be done.
0: On the space side of things, uh, Jay Raymond, the the former uh, chief of space operations used to make the point uh, that, um, you know, space is, you know, but it's cyberspace it's undersea cables it's ground stations uh, and it's all the way up uh to uh cislunar uh orbit um when it comes to the security of the space infrastructure is there a grade you would be able to put on it right or or i mean i would imagine that some of our uh, classified assets are better protected but maybe some other things aren't i mean then again you know the, the Russians tried to uh, hack uh, and interfere with Starlink uh, and uh, Elon Musk managed to uh, you know, ensure that the Ukrainians kept getting signal uh, when they needed it. I mean, how would you categorize the the surety and the security of the sp- nation's space infrastructure?
2: So, um, look, you hit on a great sector here, Rago. The space sector is an important one. I'd give it a grade of incomplete because we don't even call it a critical infrastructure sector. In fact, we just finished a report, CSC 2.0, along with the McCrary Institute. So, Frank Solifo and I um, uh, co wrote it. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and in that report, uh, we made clear that we have to designate the space sector as a national critical infrastructure, assign subsectors to the Department of Defense Intelligence Committee and a subsector to the FCC for communications to manage them. But overall, we have to get better organized on this. We have to have rule sets for how you protect it. You when you asked, do I think satellites are secure? Well, first of all, that leaked document seemed to imply the Chinese thought many of our satellites weren't secure. And look, the longer satellites been up there, the less I believe it was launched with the right uh, degree of cybersecurity, right? Mm-hmm. When it was launched five or 10 or 15 years ago. And you know, in, in, in SUTU software upgrades are very hard um, with satellites as opposed to a ground-based system. Um, so they're very vulnerable. And by the way, um, General Raymond was spot on. I put undersea cables for that. I mean, there's an ongoing crisis in the uh, outlying islands of Taiwan whose submarine cables appear to have been clipped by someone. I'll give you one guess on which nation state might have done that. Uh, you know, and so the, uh, the island of Matsui hasn't had uh, hasn't had uh, any kind of uh, connectivity, you know, uh, fiber optic connectivity with mainland Taiwan for the last few weeks. So the answer is that China's going to exploit it. Another um, thing you read in the leaked documents would have made you think, yeah, that's a surprise. I think General Raymond, General Saltzman know exactly the risk environment they're operating in. I think we're we're making the right investments in, in the cybersecurity of our military space systems. Um, you always have to make sure they're properly applied and that you're Constantly, you know, vigilant for changes and necessary changes, but I think that's happening. Where I think we're probably, you know, slightly dropping the ball is in how do we help, you know, regulate and and standardize and incentivize cybersecurity into the private sector side of the space sector.
0: Uh, what, once again, right? I mean, it, it comes down to public-private uh, partnership in order uh, to to make everything. Uh, work. Let me uh, take you to the question of the of the Russians. Uh, obviously, there is uh, the Russians are improving their defenses in expectation uh, of a Ukrainian offensive. The Russians have become somewhat more active. Right, we've we've seen some denial of service attacks, uh, as as well as uh, some disruptive attacks that are attributed uh, to the Russians. Um, some um, uh, surface. Uh, uh some surface ships seen in the baltic and elsewhere uh that could have uh that could interfere with uh undersea communications cables right i mean still important to the entire cyber infrastructure of the world as you mentioned what should we what are we seeing the russians do and what should we be expecting from them uh given the incendiary language we're hearing increasingly from from russian officials as they seem to be making the case uh that when when this offensive happened, it's going to be us against all of you. Beware! There will be a broader war that you guys can't control. Right, part part of their escalatory yeah. rhetoric. Well,
2: you know, you, uh, you're exactly right, Vago. I think we, we can see three things coming from the Russians. First, um, there's going to there's been a restoration of ransomware right after the February invasion. There was a drop off in ransomware um, as uh, Russian and you know to a very small degree Ukrainian ransomware as a service providers you know, repurpose themselves. Those Russians have come back to their normal criminal activity. So ransomware is back on the uptake again. And I think it's very much direct, you know, it's not just sheltered and harbored by Putin and his gang, you know, and the SVR and GRU as intelligence organizations. These ransomware and service providers are, are, are given their target sets by them as well on occasion. So they are a tool of the Russian state in addition to being nefarious criminal actors. That's number one, ransomware. Number two, you are going to see them take, you know, they've had time to re, you know, kind of rethink how they're going to attack, you know, do cyber attacks against um, systems inside Ukraine. Although I think the turn to cruise missiles and kind of just hammering the electrical power grid that way probably is the predominant attack method. But I think you'll see more cyber, you know, used against Ukraine. And then third, and the one that you averred to with the uh, Russian uh, comments, um, is they are, you know, they do have the capability and capacity to cause harm and danger in Europe and the United States uh, critical infrastructures I think the the attack on the uh, European uh, air safety um, agency was a little bit you know minor league you know it' was a denial of service mm-hmm. website defacement it wasn't like the, the attack we saw on Fink and Terry earlier in the week but what I'll tell you um, you know that third one's out there the Russians can attack our critical infrastructure. DHS and CISA have been out good warnings on this over the last few years about the planting of malware in our systems by Russia, China, and Iran, and, uh, and they can certainly take advantage of them. And certainly you don't have to think back too far uh, to solar winds to remember when the Russians did a pretty good job uh, working against us. So all three of those, ransomware attacks in Ukraine and strategic attacks on the Western United States.
0: Um, You know, it's uh, interesting you mentioned Finn Contieri, that was going to be my next question. Uh, One of the nation's most important shipbuilders, obviously a builder of the the freedom class littoral combat ship, which is winding down, but certainly, uh, and more importantly, uh, the uh, company that's developing and building the next generation frigate for anti-submarine frigate for the U.S. Navy, the Constellation class. What do we, uh, that was first reported by uh, U.S. uh, Naval Institute, uh, Sam uh, Legrone and his great team there. Um, what is it we know about the FinCantieri uh, attack, uh, Mark? Uh, what it means, and whether any sensitive information has been compromised?
2: Well, again, this is a uh, you know this is ransomware. Ransomware is effectively as you know, effective criminal activity because the criminals have learned to monetize data. You know, you can attack a company four different ways. You can deny their business operations, deny their field operations, steal data. Uh, or uh, you know create reputational damage this was clearly targeted at business operations you know as I read it critical manufacturing machines had to be shut down you know it it, uh, it had that uh, you know it, the articles are pretty careful to not say whether think Terry paid a ransom or not um I imagine if I were running a company who was on the on the spot for delivering uh, the next, the first frigate on time I' probably, you know, I I might feel like I need to pay the ransom, depending how much it was. But in any case, they rapidly got their services back up. It could also be the Finketery is one of those companies that runs a very, a highly, a highly capable, redundant system and was able to just come back up online without paying the ransom. We, we don't know. Um, but in any case, they recovered reasonably rapidly for for one of these events and, you know, are back, you know, back on track. Uh but uh, this reminds us that ra- ransomware can have a very significant impact uh through a, through a denial of business operations where you you stop a pipeline from pumping or you stop these critical manufacturing machines from producing product you know for a a, a shipbuilding line or you know the cases like this are are easily the most damaging uh so um anyway i'm i uh, i'm I'm glad fi back up i hope they didn't have to pay the ransom to do it it would be a feather in their cap if they didn't, and uh, but it's a reminder to us that this re- this criminal activity has a national security impact.
0: Uh, and and clearly, uh, the team Rick Hunt uh, and Mark Vandroff, uh, certainly working it hard uh, at at their end uh, as they as they work uh, to deliver the first in class uh, ship, uh, part of a a ten ship initial buy uh, that could be much much larger, of course, uh, after time. Uh, let me. I uh, ask you real quick, uh, you're a budget maven. Uh, everybody knows that uh, you are on Senator John McCain's uh, staff, so you know your way inside and out of the budget. You've given us uh, sort of a preview uh, when the budget first came out on, on the or or review of the cyber elements. Walk us through what where you see hearings going, where you see spending going when it comes to uh, cyber, uh, as well as on the technology uh, end of things, right? I mean, this is an extraordinary Uh, series of measures uh, the Biden administration uh, advocated uh, to uh, improve everything from chips to broader science investment. Kind of walk us through from from cyber to technology. What do you think are the positive elements you're seeing and what maybe is a little bit less
1: positive?
2: All right. Here's what I'm looking at. Uh, You know, it's a big budget. There's a, you know, 13 billion of non-DOD and 13 billion of DOD cyber in there. You know, it's a 25, 26 billion to track. So there's a lot in there, but here are the big items I'm tracking, they're mostly outside DOD because I think the DOD budget was written well and will be almost 100% executed as is. Um, But outside of DOD, the big issues are the sector risk management agencies. People like the EPA, uh, Treasury, Energy, the Coast Guard, are they getting the money they need to build that public-private collaboration? Because the, the bottom line is that resourcing over the last four administrations has been inconsistent and usually too low, almost always too low. So with very few exceptions, they these agencies, uh, Department of Agriculture had a great press release where they announced they're spending 225,000 on, on this mission. And you know, someone had to kind of gently point out that the Department of Energy spends 100 million. I'm guessing the $225,000 is probably a low ball number. Uh, but all those sector risk management agencies need to be spending the right amount of money on this. The second is CISA it has grown from about 1.5 billion to now in this year's budget uh, about 3.1 billion i know that's fast uh, they're not yet you know burning you know dollar bills in a 55 gallon barrel but they're close so it, my my guidance you know my best recommendation would be hey do good oversight of that money but give them the money right this is a growth industry we are building the operation the kind of quarterback in the team for defending our cyberspace it says it was natural that it was going to grow my um, well, guess is the agency needed to nearly double in size from its 2017 instantiation to where it needs to be, you know, 2025. 20, so it's going to need that kind of budget numbers. Third, I'd be giving Ambassador Nate Fick the money he he's requested for cyber capacity building. That was the best 50 million dollars we could have spent with Ukraine. That's what kept the electrical power grid up the first three or four weeks around Kiev and Lviv, you know, against the Russian attacks. We spent 50 million dollars over five, you know, four years from so 20. 17 to 2021. We then pushed hunt forward teams there from Cyber Command for about 10 months, which has another bill to it. Those were those were pocket lint uh, bills for big time return on Ukraine being cyber ready at the point of impact. Uh, and we can do the same kind of thing in a few other countries: Taiwan, uh, Eastern Europe, uh, to, to name a few. And, th- and then finally, um, you know, it's a personal thing. Uh, the, the the federal cyber workforce is really done well by a program called CyberCore Scholarship for Service at the National Science Foundation. It's been growing about 7% a year. <clears throat> it needs to overall d- double in size between about 2019 and 2029. You know, it's creeping up there. Let's give it another 7 to 10% this year. Uh, get it up towards, uh, you know, 80, 80 to $85 million. That's the kind of budget we need there. These are A lot of these are small investments, Vago. That have big time payoffs for the federal government. I hope we can the, the congressional appropriators can see their way through uh, on all these recommendations.
0: You know, and you mentioned uh, Ambassador Fick. Uh, if I uh, recall, seeing something from the State Department that he was out in San Francisco and was heading out uh, to uh, Japan. Uh, so we wish him uh, wish him well on that uh, trip. Uh, Mark, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks very much. We've got a lot of other stuff we want to discuss, but uh, would love to have you come back on uh, when it comes to how we need to be thinking about artificial intelligence uh, as uh, lawmakers. You know, we had John Co. Francesco on uh, and uh, would, would love to kind of get, get your broader sense. But unfortunately, we're out of time today. Thanks so very much for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me, Vago.